Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. Good morning. The weather is good here at uh, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The astronauts are aboard their command module out there on the pad, ready for launch off, and the countdown goes right ahead toward a launch one hour, 17 minutes, and 39 seconds from now. As you undoubtedly know by now, it is a dress rehearsal for the flight expected to come in July, if all goes well on this flight. Putting a man on the surface of the moon for the first time has to be one of the greatest stories of civilized man's entire existence on this earth. The first time he escapes from the earth and actually lands on another planet. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 190 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10, the launch. Launch uh, as those who watch on television, but they'll least have uh, been able to say that they have been there. Those who can say they've been there at Apollo 10 include the King and Queen of Belgium. They are here over in the Launch Control Center as special guests of uh, another distinguished guest, Vice President Spiro Agnew. Uh, he is here. He is the chairman of the National Aeronautics and Space Council, and uh, with him, uh, watching this flight, is young uh, Bill Anders who was one of the three men who circled the moon in Apollo 8, you remember. Uh, he's uh, a backup uh, uh, crew for Apollo 11, but after that he's going to become secretary of the National Aeronautics and Space Council and will leave the active space program for what he considers an even more important job for the future of our entire space effort. The countdown key... Apollo 10 was classified as an F-type mission. To test all elements of the Apollo spacecraft, both the command service module and lunar module in the lunar environment. To demonstrate performance of the lunar module and the command service module in the lunar gravitational field. And to evaluate the command service module and lunar module docked and undocked during lunar navigation. The mission would follow the same basic flight plan as the first lunar landing, with the exception of the landing. The question of why doesn't Apollo 10 just go ahead and land continues to be asked even just before the launch. This is the CBS News version. And why can't this lunar module land on this particular flight? Well, we can get an explanation of that from Nelson Benton and Scott McLeod at the Grumman Aircraft plant in Bethpage, Long Island. Walter, there was some small debate at NASA after the successful flight around the moon of Apollo 8 as to whether the moon landing flight would be Apollo 10, this one, or Apollo 11, the next one. That was quickly resolved. It would be Apollo 11. But since that decision was made, there has been speculation as to whether or not this limb flying in Apollo 10 could land on the moon. 
if it if there was a real-time decision to do so. Well, Scott McCloud can lamb for this lamb land on the moon if they decide to do so after getting to 50,000 feet and everything going well. Well, Nelson, I guess the answer directly is no, it cannot land on the moon. Basically, the reason is, uh, in our flight plan, we have not planned it to land there, and therefore, there is not enough fuel to go down to a landing. The reason there isn't enough fuel is so that we can have the proper amount of weight on the vehicle when we go back up for a rendezvous and docking with the command module. In other words, you want to have exactly the same weight, as close as possible, the same weight that uh, the LEM will have when it comes back to meet with the command module on 11. Yes, this is to simulate all of the conditions at lunar distance and exercise all of the systems, and we want to be as close as possible to the actual 11 flight. It's the dress rehearsal effect. Yes, it is. Are there any other systems that are not aboard that would be needed for a lunar landing? Well, I guess basically the only other difference is that we make our landing utilizing this computer, and in this flight, the ropes which guide the computer are not loaded aboard, and therefore we could not make an automatic landing down to the surface. We do it by hand the hard way. Yes, that's right. So, Walter, most space flights do indeed have surprises, but at this point it looks like a real-time decision to land on the moon will not be among them. You know, Tom Stafford, a uh, uh, gentleman uh, in the weeks before this flight, when, I, when uh, we asked him, uh, is there any chance, Tom, you're gonna, just going to be there 50,000 feet from the surface of the moon, don't you? Isn't there going to be a temptation to kind of just ease her down and actually be the first man on the moon, which at one time he thought he was going to be, you know? You know, it must have been quite a disappointment when they changed the series of flights so that he's not actually making the landing. But uh, when he answered that question, there was always sort of a twinkle in his eye. Some of us suspected he might be really planning to uh, slip a fast one over and land, but it turns out he just isn't going to have the opportunity to do it. He's taken that like a good sport to have the rest of his Apollo 10 crew, and they say they feel that the importance of the mission is such that they're not concerned about not being the ones who land. The Saturn V launch vehicle was designated AS-505, which meant it was the fifth launch of the Apollo's Saturn V stack. The command and service module were designated CSM-106, and the lunar module was designated LM-4. For over two months, the space and launch vehicles were tested on the pad and their pyrotechnics were prepared for launch. On May 2, 1969, the huge propellant tanks of the S-1C first stage were filled with RP-1, a refined kerosene fuel for the first stage of the flight. For five days, commencing on May 5, Kennedy Space Center personnel performed the countdown demonstration test, essentially a complete rehearsal of the count, including the filling of the cryogenic tanks. This proved the readiness of the launch crew and all the ground support systems that prepare the Saturn V and the Apollo spacecraft for flight. Steps were taken to ensure that the range safety explosives could not be detonated and that the vehicle's engines could not be accidentally ignited. The launch teams brought the count all the way to the point where in a real launch, the engines of the first stage would be ignited. On completion of the countdown demonstration test, the huge quantities of supercold liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen were drained from the launch vehicle. 
the final preparation of the vehicle for launch then commenced. The completed vehicle was to launch from pad 39B. This was the only use of that pad during the Apollo lunar missions. All the rest were on pad 39A. So why did Apollo 10 not launch on pad 39A? The launch of Apollo 10 is going to inaugurate a new launch pad here on Merritt Island. Pad B, it's called, 39B to be exact. This complex was built uh, here with two launch sites, and there's room to add a third if needed. All the earlier Saturn Vs are lifted off from Pad A, which is uh, directly behind us here. And the lunar landing flight this summer, Apollo 11, is going to begin on Pad A there, three miles from us. David Shoemaker has report, a report on why we're using Pad B for Apollo 10. The decision to use Pad B seems to boil down to one simple fact. It is there. Of course, there is a somewhat more complex bureaucratic explanation involving what are called recycle times that two pads can more quickly handle Apollos 9, 10, and 11. But in fact, Apollo 10 was not rolled out until 9 went into orbit, and 11 won't come out of the huge vehicle assembly building until 10 is launched. So, while one $23 million pad is being used, the other $28 million pad is virtually deserted. Like the explanation for Vietnam, the reason for two launch pads has changed over the years, depending partly on the outlook at the time, partly by who is doing the explaining. Originally, the hope was that rockets would be blasting off almost monthly, and sometimes even simultaneously. When Congress failed to get quite that enthused over the space program, officials began to emphasize the safety margin. If a rocket blows up on one pad, it is said, there would be no delay switching to the second. But as we learned in the 1967 fire, which killed three astronauts, such tragedies provoke lengthy investigations, and pad damage can be repaired long before a government commission finally finishes its review and okays another launch. And if the argument for two pads has any merit, even NASA officials like G. Merritt Preston admit there is a stronger argument for operating off the same pad for every launch. There, there are advantages, as I said, to... Uh because of the constant use, you become familiar with equipment, uh, you understand it, and um, therefore it is more reliable. And secondly, then if you only use one pad, you have to only maintain one pad. We, of course, would have to do some maintenance on the other, but it's not near the same amount of work. The countdown for Apollo 10 began at 100 hours GMT on May 17, 1969, and proceeded with no unscheduled holds. At T-12 hours during the automatic replenish operations of the RP-1 propellant, the fast fill valve open indicator dropped out, causing system shutdown. Replenish operations were initiated in the manual mode and were completed satisfactorily. At six predetermined points in the count, the countdown clock was put on hold to give the launch teams an opportunity to fix problems and to allow those tasks subsequently delayed to get back on track. At T-8 hours, a failure occurred during fill line chill-down on the primary liquid oxygen replenish pump during its startup procedure due to a blown fuse in the pump motor starter circuit. Troubleshooting of the faulty pump resulted in the replacement of the fuse which delayed the beginning of liquid oxygen loading by 50 minutes.
However, it was completed by T-minus 4 hours, 22 minutes. So the scheduled one-hour hold at T-minus 3 hours, 30 minutes prevented a launch delay. Before loading, the upper stage tanks were conditioned because the supercold fuel would solidify almost any contaminant gas present within the tank. The process began at T-minus 7 hours and 42 minutes and took 2 hours and 40 minutes. Helium was used to condition the tanks because it would not freeze in the presence of liquid hydrogen. Helium was passed through the tanks repeatedly to remove air and water vapor. Then, to begin cooling the tanks, cold gas was pumped through them. At T-minus 4 hours 49 minutes, the final chill-down of the second S2 stage began by filling the tank with fuel, slowly at first. It took 46 minutes to get all the fuel required for launch into the tank, after which the level was maintained until launch to compensate for continuing boil-off. Once the S2 was full, loading the S4B began in a similar manner, and it reached launch mass at T-3 hours and 30 minutes. The backup module pilot, Don Isley, and astronaut Joe Engel went on board the command module early in the countdown to verify the liftoff configuration, checking each switch, circuit breaker, knob, and talkback indicator to ensure that they were all correctly set prior to the flight crew's arrival and ingress. Isley remained inside the command module during the flight crew ingress to assist them connecting the environmental umbilicals and communications links between the spacecraft and the astronauts' spacesuits. The crew were all on board the command module by T-minus 2 hours and 33 minutes to perform their pre-launch checks. Now I have a series of clips from Jack King as the countdown progressed. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, 1 hour 26 minutes and counting. We are proceeding with the Apollo 10 countdown at this time. The uh, closeout crew at the 320-foot level now have essentially completed their work and they're about to secure the white room, the arm that attaches to the spacecraft hatch itself. Uh, they begin to break up the white room and preparations uh, for their departure and also preparations a little later for retracting the uh, complete swing arm, swing arm number nine, to a standby position. Uh, we're uh, a good bit ahead in the countdown as far as these preparations are concerned, probably in the area some 20 minutes ago or so. We anticipate that the closeout crew will be ready to depart in about 10 minutes from this time. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus one hour, 16 minutes and counting. We are go on the countdown for the Apollo 10 lunar mission at this time. Astronaut Tom Stafford, the spacecraft commander in the uh, spacecraft, going through some checks with the spacecraft test conductor of the stabilization and control system of the spacecraft at this time. All the propellants aboard, are aboard the three-stage Saturn V launch vehicle, and all looks well at this time. We are go at T-minus one hour, 15 minutes, 30 seconds and counting. This is launch control. Apollo Saturn launch control, T-minus one hour, six minutes and counting. Still aiming toward our planned liftoff at 12.49 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. All aspects of the countdown, both with the Saturn V launch vehicle, the Apollo spacecraft, and the lunar module, all are go at this time. 
the uh, closeout crew, which has been up at the 320-foot level at the end of the uh, swing arm, swing arm number nine, working with the Apollo 10 crew in the spacecraft, now is departing the area. Once the crew has left, this will permit us to, to go into preparations to move the swing arm away from the spacecraft hatch. We move the swing arm 12 degrees from the hatch in uh, a parked position where it remains till the T-minus five, five minute mark in the count when it comes all the way back to its fallback position of about 60 feet. The purpose, of course, is in the event of an emergency, we could bring that swing arm, arm back in a hurry and the astronauts could egress. They have a high-speed elevator that's locked at the 320-foot level, standing by in case of such an emergency. This elevator is operated by Jack Lausma, the capsule communicator, the astronaut capsule communicator here in the firing room. Mark, T-minus 60 minutes and counting. T-minus 60, we are proceeding at this time. The 363-foot Apollo Saturn V space vehicle is go as are the tracking elements, weather, all conditions ready for a launch at 12.49 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. At this point in the countdown, we're beginning some uh, final uh, telemetry checks and we're bringing up the various radio frequencies concerned with the launch vehicle. These include two key tracking beacons uh, located in the instrument unit, which gives us back tracking information during the powered phase of flight. All still well with the uh, Apollo 10 astronauts, Tom Stafford, John Young, and Gene Cernan aboard the spacecraft at the 320-foot level. This is launch control. This is Apollo Saturn launch control, T-minus 50 minutes, 52 seconds, and counting. All still going well with the countdown at this time. Here in the uh, firing room, the launch team gearing up for two key tests at this time. One, a check of the range safety command destruct system aboard the Saturn V launch vehicle. The other, some attitude command checks to assure that the engines will swivel in response to commands from the guidance system during flight. The astronauts in the spacecraft are still busy with some of their final preparations at this time, and all is uh, proceeding satisfactorily. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control at 46 minutes and counting. T-minus 46 and counting, all still proceeding very satisfactorily with a countdown of the Saturn V Apollo space vehicle. The uh, swing arm number nine now has been retracted to the 12 degree position. This is a position some five feet away from the spacecraft. Once this was accomplished, we then proceeded to arm the pyrotechnics, the buses for the pyrotechnics aboard the spacecraft, particularly the launch escape tower. From here on down during the count, if an emergency was so critical that it would be necessary, the astronauts could activate that escape tower now that the swing arm has been removed uh, away from it. The range safety command checks are still continuing at this time. All is going well. Still aiming toward our... This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. T-minus 41 minutes and counting. T-minus 41, all going well. Little quieter from the spacecraft now. The astronauts are still busy, but they're not sending back as many reports as they had uh, up to about 10 minutes ago. The countdown is still proceeding very satisfactorily at this time. Coming up in about five minutes will be a key test of the launch vehicle, a power transfer, where we will switch from external power to the flight batteries aboard the three stages and instrument unit of the Saturn V to assure ourselves that they will operate properly when called on during the flight. Over the final portion of the uh, countdown, that uh, swing arm number nine will come back to its fully retracted position at five minutes in the count 
will go on an automatic sequencer at uh, three minutes and six seconds in the countdown. From that point on down, all activities uh, during these final moments of the countdown will be automatic, run by the ground-based master computer here in the control center. If anything does go wrong, the computer will automatically shut down and stop the count. We'll go into a hold under those conditions. Once the uh, automatic sequence does occur, we will uh, begin to pressurize the various tanks uh, in the uh, three stages of the Saturn V. We'll go on a uh, transfer to internal power with the uh, launch vehicle at the 50-second mark. The five engines in the first stage will ignite at 8.9 seconds. We'll have all engines running at two seconds in the count and should get liftoff at zero. Still aiming to... This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus 36 minutes and counting, T-minus 36. All still going well with the command module, service module, lunar module for the flight, as well as the three stages of the Saturn V launch vehicle. We are go for the mission at this time. The following are some of the highlights that have occurred uh, since last evening. We went into a built-in hold at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time yesterday afternoon. Uh, following the uh, uh, start of the built-in hold, we did move the 9.8 million pound mobile service structure from the pad. The service structure uh, was moved to its fallback position, which is some 17,000 feet away uh, from pad B. Uh, astronauts Don Isley and Joe Engel boarded the Apollo 10 spacecraft last e evening to go through some uh, switch list checks to assure that all would be ready for the countdown when it was picked up today. We picked up our countdown at T-minus 9 hours uh, and counting at 2.49 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time this morning. We're a little late starting our propellant loading because of some minor problems uh, uh, at the launch pad concerned with ground support equipment. However, we then did proceed into our propellant load and loaded a uh, little more than three-quarters of a million gallons of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen aboard the vehicle. We were then ready by uh, the time we resumed our countdown at 3 hours and 30 minutes to have a full propellant supply aboard. The Apollo 10 astronauts, Tom Stafford, John Young, and Gene Cernan, were awakened this morning with Stafford and uh, Young being awakened at 7.34 a.m., uh, their teammate, uh, Gene Cernan, got up a little earlier. He was awakened at 6.50 a.m. They had breakfast uh, with uh, some 10 uh, of their colleagues, uh, donned their suits, and then came to the pad. They were declared uh, physically fit during a brief examination by Drs. John Teagan and Dr. Alan Harder before coming to the launch pad. The uh, breakfast menu uh, included the normal at astronaut fare of steak and eggs with coffee, orange juice. The crew came aboard the spacecraft with the commander first at 10.06 a.m. He was followed by the lunar module pilot, Gene Cernan, who sits in the right-hand seat at 10.11 a.m. And finally, John Young, the man in the middle seat, the command module pilot, at 10.16. Since the crew has come aboard, we've really been ahead in the countdown. Since that time, all has gone well. We're proceeding at this time. We have just satisfactorily completed our power transfer with the launch vehicle. Tom Stafford aboard the spacecraft, giving some readouts back to test conductor Skip Chauvin at this time. As the countdown continues, we will check in with Houston. This is Mission Control Houston. The prime team of flight controllers headed by Glenn Lenny is on station prepared to support this mission. The manned space flight ne network reports it is green, ready to support the mission. One minor problem with the telemetry computer at Carnarvon, but it will not hold the uh, 
the mission up, there is a backup computer there. Recovery forces report uh, all on station. Among those in the viewing room here at the control center are uh, Senator and Mrs. Barry Goldwater. We have three astronauts at the Capcom console. Charlie Duke, Bruce McCandless, and the backup spacecraft commander for Apollo 10, Gordon Cooper. Taped to the Capcom console are two dolls, one Charlie Brown, one Snoopy, replete with spacesuit. This is Mission Control Houston. Now, back to the Cape with Jack King. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus 11 minutes and counting, T-minus 11. All aspects uh, still going well at this time. The astronauts aboard the spacecraft have just completed some special communications checks on what we call the Astrocom circuit. It's a special circuit which has the launch operations manager, spacecraft test conductor, and astronaut Jack Lausma, who has the call sign Stoney, the capsule communicator here in the firing room. This is special communications that can be used, uh, particularly for abort contingencies. These are the only people on the circuit, and they have performed their final communications checks. At about five minutes, we'll go on the circuit uh, and keep it up at that time. Mission Control Center in Houston also coming through, coming in shortly here with some communications checks. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus six minutes, 43 seconds, and counting. Spacecraft test conductor Skip Chauvin has just completed a final status check of all personnel involved in the spacecraft countdown. He received goes from all participating, three particularly strong ones from the three astronauts aboard the Apollo 10 spacecraft. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus four minutes, 30 seconds, and counting. The Apollo Axis arm, swing arm number nine, now fully retracted to its fallback position some 60 feet away from the spacecraft. At liftoff, we will have some five swing arms still attached. They will move back automatically uh, at first motion, some three-quarters of an inch after the vehicle uh, takes off. Astronaut Tom Stafford has completed his checks with the spacecraft test conductor. The mission director, George Hage, and the launch director, Rocco Patron, have given a go for the flight, as has the range. We've now passed the four-minute mark and proceeding satisfactorily. We are go. This is launch control. This is Apollo Saturn launch control. We've just passed the three-minute mark. We've had the firing command. That's the signal that the automatic sequence is now in. The rest, the remainder of the count, will be handled by the master computer here in the firing room as uh, various of events click off leading up to the ignition of the five engines in the first stage of the Saturn V at the zero, uh, with liftoff at the zero mark in the count. The actual ignition of those five engines will come at uh, 8.9 seconds in the count. We'll have a report of all engines running at the two second mark. Uh, at that time, uh, and over the next two seconds, those engines will be uh, specially checked to assure that we have proper thrust. Once that occurs, we will get commit meaning that the hold-down arms can release and we will get lift-off of uh, the Saturn V launch vehicle at seven and a half million pounds of thrust. We're now coming up toward the two-minute mark in the count. At this point, the tanks in the vehicle pressurize. Two minutes and counting. Our status board indicates uh, here in the control room that all assets are uh, ready. Tom Stafford is just reporting back. Uh, thank, uh, they want to thank everybody for all the help. We're now at T-minus one minute, 45 seconds, and counting. We'll go on internal power with the launch vehicle at the 50-second mark. At 17 seconds in the count, the guidance system goes internal. This is guidance reference release. 
We already have the proper flight azimuth in. Now 90 seconds and counting. Now 90 and counting. The astronauts have turned off their ground communication at this time. However, they are on uh, VHF and, of course, the S-band circuits, as well as the special astronaut communication circuit. One minute, 12 seconds, and counting the vehicle tanks beginning to pressurize at this time. Our status board indicates that the third stage tanks are now pressurized. We're coming up on the 60-second mark. 60 seconds and counting. We are gold for a mission to the moon at this time. The second stage tanks now pressurizing, and we're coming up on the power transfer. 50 seconds and counting. We have now switched to internal power satisfactorily on the batteries of the first stage, all three stages of the seconds and counting. John Stafford making a final check of his computer. The vehicle... Uh, all uh, stages pressurized okay, at this time. We're waiting for the swing arms to come okay. back. One uh, should be coming back at this time, a second one at 17 seconds. Tom Stafford reports they are go. We're coming up on the 22nd mark. T minus 20 seconds and counting. 17 seconds and counting. Guidance in turn. 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. Engines on, five, four, three, two, all engines running. Launch commit, liftoff. We have liftoff 49 minutes past the hour. Stafford reports the clock has started. The tower is clear. As Apollo 10 cleared the tower, Houston assumed control of the mission. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 190 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 10, The Launch. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook you can do all that and more on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today we salute the Orion-level donors. There are 20 so far this year. Orion donors give $100 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Orion donors. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am to finally get Apollo 10 launched. We're going to the moon again, and I feel fine. Wow, that Jack King is awesome. He gives us so much information delivering those launch status updates. It's just a wealth of information. You feel like you know exactly what is going on when you listen to Jack King. He is just awesome. That was a lot of fun. Now, I have some bonus content that really didn't fit anywhere in the episode. During the countdown... Walter Cronkite took the opportunity to speak with noted science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke. Clarke was there at the launch, and he made some interesting predictions for the future based on his viewpoint in 1969. Here's the clip. 
With me here at our CBS News Space Center at the Kennedy Space Center uh, is the distinguished historian and science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, an old friend of mine I am very honored to say, the man who, among other things, uh, wrote that uh, very exciting movie, 2001, although we're not here to plug movies today, nor books, uh, Mr. Clarke, sir. <laughs> we're here to talk about the mission of Apollo 10. And uh, I'm wondering what you see. You followed space longer than almost anybody, except uh, maybe the uh, first rocketeers. Uh, I, I think uh, you've written about it. Uh, your projections have come terribly true. And you were telling me that eight years ago you made a bet that the first moon landing would be in May of this month. Uh, ten years ago, yeah. yes. I just lost the bet by about three months. <laughs> well, that's pretty close ten years ago. And no, no, very few of us were dreaming of that. What do you think the significance of Apollo 10 is? Well, you know, it's as if we're at Kitty Hawk now in 1900 and, say, about November 1903, and the Wrights are just playing around with their airplane, and we're trying to anticipate what importance this is going to be, and accept that this is more important, probably, than the conquest of the air. But it, it depends on your the time scale you take. In the long run, the conquest of space is going to be much more important than the conquest of the air, because, after all, the airplane only took us to places we've already been to. But what's happening now, we're going to go to new worlds, wouldn't the Wright brothers be uh, more comparable to uh, going back to Shepard and uh, Gagarin's flights and John Glenn's first orbital flight? Uh, haven't we kind of reached the uh, Boeing, uh, well, maybe no. the DC-3 stage? No, we haven't reached that. The, the, you're right, uh, the people you mentioned are more comparable perhaps to Lilienthal and the um, first gliders. And we won't get to the DC-3 stage until we have reusable spacecraft that we can fly over and over again just like commercial aircraft today. They don't have to be thrown away in a single launch as they do at the moment. DC-3, of course, we're talking about was that workhorse of World War exactly. II in the aircraft area, the really first uh, major transport aircraft, I suppose. The, uh, uh, well, now, just last uh, week, we flew supersonic for the first time. The, uh, the land lander, the land uh, spacecraft uh, out at Edwards Air Force Base, I believe, a spacecraft that will be able to come back from a space mission, a space yeah. taxi, and land on the land and be used again. This is the way space travel has got to develop. We have to make it a regular routine thing, and we have to develop spacecraft which can an enter and land anywhere, and particularly can land on land. This business of landing in the sea is such a constraint. And as you know, the Russians, in fact, do come down on land, which must simplify their operations enormously. Partly, though, because of, they've got a lot more land to come down in uh, undeveloped areas, and and another, and their launch azimuth from where they launch, they really almost have to come down land, don't they? Or they'd be really way off. Uh, no, they could come down in the sea. In fact, it would be more convenient in some ways right. from the energy point of view. Although I hate to get into this, so that's some yeah, it's a little complicated. Yes, <laughs> uh, uh, Arthur, tell me what you foresee now. You've been terribly accurate in your predictions so far. What do you see in the rest of this uh, 20th century, in the next uh, 30 years? Well, we're going to see the, the moon being opened up in the way the Antarctic has been opened up in this century, with the establishment first of unmanned bases, instruments being set up which can radio back to Earth. And then I hope within this decade, say within the 1970s, I hope we'll see the establishment of permanent bases with, with men there on the moon all the time and relieved from time to time by flights from Earth. And then I think that towards the end of this century, we'll be considering major permanent operations. In other words, the setting up of quite large bases, 
which eventually will grow into full-scale colonies. But of course, this depend the rate at which this happens depends on how fast we locate lunar resources, which can be exploited when we get there. And what about the manned orbiting laboratories? What we do with sort of inner space? Well, that is perhaps in the short run even more important because these uh, manned laboratories in space and observatories are going to enable us to exploit near space for many terrestrial uses, for meteorology, for communications, and above all, for discovering new resources on this planet, resources of land and sea. And there's a gigantic industry going to develop in near space in the next few decades, which will do so many things for us here on Earth that we'll be unable to imagine how we ever managed without this kind of facility. The environmental uh, survey was, uh, has been going on for some time, and yes. it's almost taken a back seat to the more dramatic manned flights. But as you say, there's probably nothing more important than that. Uh, with infrared and other photography, we'll be able to see how crops are growing, how, where mineral deposits are, exactly. uh, food uh, potential of the sea, million uses there. Yes, the, the Earth resources satellites are so important that there are some areas in this where you can predict with considerable accuracy the investment of a single dollar will bring back 50 or 100 dollars within a relatively few years in, in um, meteorology, of course, is already happening, but in discovering new mineral resources, oil resources, and in opening up areas of the sea which are much more fertile than the areas we're already exploiting. Well, there is some criticism and perhaps some justified criticism of spending $24 billion on the Apollo program right now to reach the moon when there are so many uh, other matters demanding our attention and our dollars here at home on Earth. Uh, it may be that in a few years we'll look back on this and wonder how we could have ever questioned uh, this investment, even as I suppose there were some... Uh, Chagrin, uh, there was some chagrin in uh, Spain when they wondered why they questioned $75,000 to send Columbus to America. Yes. Or the, how many million dollars was it this country spent for the purchase of Alaska, the Seaward's Folly, about 100 years ago? Yeah. Thank you very much, Arthur. I expect to be talking to you many more times during the next eight days when I'll have the privilege of having you with us on these uh, broadcasts. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Arthur Clark, the distinguished... Uh, uh, science fiction writer, man, historian, and world traveler. You never know where Arthur is going to show up next around the world. Okay, pretty interesting stuff there from Walter and Arthur C. Clarke. Next week, I am taking off for the holidays. I have a good encore episode to post. It will be episode 17, entitled The Mercury 7. And it will include all seven astronauts, including John Glenn, I thought it would be a good time to release that since all of the seven have now passed. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage spacerockethistory.com. Please go check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations this week. Matthew B. from the UK donated at the Gemini level and earned his moon emoji. Christopher L. from Australia donated at the Vostok level. Thank you, Christopher. Gene C., also known as Squirrel, donated at the Vostok level. Thank you, Squirrel. Alan B. from Alaska donated at the Vostok level. Thank you, Alan. James C. from Australia donated at the Mercury level. Thank you, James. Sean A. from Florida donated at the Mercury level. Thank you, Sean. Christoph M., from Massachusetts, donated at the Apollo level and earned the treasured moon emoji. Stellar Paradox, donated at the Mercury level and earned the rocket emoji. 
Ryan V. pledged on Patreon at the Sputnik level. Daniel P. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. John F. pledged at the Vostok level as well. And Perry F. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level. Thank you very much. That brings our Patreon donors to 84. Our overall donors for the year are 216, with a goal of reaching 250 by the end of 2016. So we only need 34 more donors by the end of December. No problem. (laughs) No problem, right? All right. For those of you who have not donated yet, there is still time. And December is an excellent time to earn a rocket emoji very quickly. You could make a donation in December and then another in January and you will have the coveted rocket emoji next to your name in less than a month's time. And I've got good news for the Patreon donors. Everyone on Patreon that continues their pledge into January will automatically be given the rocket or the moon emoji, whichever is next on their level. So, to make a one-time donation, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button on the top right of the page, or sign up with Patreon by clicking on the Patreon link also on the homepage just below the donate button. I was pleased to see the podcast received five new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past month. I would like to thank Sean A., Brad2000, and PJ Ward for the kind review and the all-important five-star ratings. We also had two anonymous ratings, so whoever did that, thank you very much. I sincerely appreciate it. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so, like my retweeters. 1202 Alarm, AMH Podcast, Andy Daldra, Ashley James Lee, Astronaut Snoopy, Astronauti Cast, ATM Int Arch, Bert at Home, Bob B. Bobson, Buddy P. Murphy, Beacon 63, Captain Beardley, David B. Nugent, David D. 7963, Duke of Oil 60, Free Devil, Futurama King, Hare Bush, Hollow Books, Jacob Hahn, James 2903, Gaddafi 1202, Keith Drinkwine, KHS Astronomy, Lanyard 73, Logbook Guy, M. Lunyon, Matt Milko, Peewee 888, Plunder 100, Pompeiator, Rapid Mustang, Rocket Noob, Ron Bogner, Skibby, Stephen Lebowski, Tartomatic, the J.R. Flyboy, this is Alex Boyd, XL Drac, Rob J. Mack, Shiner Squirrel, Topically Space, and Wednesday Night. Thank you so much for the retweets. I hope I didn't miss anybody. That's about all the time I have for this week. I will try to get a new episode up by the first Thursday in January, which will be January 5th. I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and so long for now.